Biohabitats is proud to sponsor this episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast during the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. And always, Biohabitats applies the science of ecology to restore degraded ecosystems, conserve habitat, and regenerate the natural systems that sustain all life on Earth. Ecological restoration is positive action that you can take and support today. It's also incredibly rewarding and a lot of fun. Learn how you can get involved in the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration by exploring the links in extra credit. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. As we cautiously look forward to a new year in conservation, I recently spent some time looking back at some of the great episodes on the Rewilding Earth podcast from 2022. It turned out to be a year of wild swings between good and bad news, a year that has tested everyone here at the Rewilding Institute as we were forced to say goodbye to our dear friend, mentor, and conservation legend, Dave Foreman. It was also the year that rewilding clawed its way deeper into environmental vernacular as humanity debates how it will provide a future for wildlands, oceans, and biodiversity on this planet. Following are excerpts from 11 episodes that were impactful to me in 2022, among a year of chats with experts that inspired us to keep up the hard work for a better future for the wild. A year after a sitting U.S. president acknowledged the need for 30 by 30, the Rewilding Institute set out to clarify what real land and water protection means so that the pencil pushers aren't tempted to count paper protections to meet the goal. Today, there are countless rewilding projects, big and small, happening in North America and around the world, though we found out some projects are playing fast and loose with the term, as Kate McFarlane pointed out. There is widespread agreement in any commentator you'll read that in the common European use of the word word rewilding, um, the underlying concept which is applied comes out of the Netherlands. It's this Dutch concept called nature development, which um, how the the controversial project Osvaldus Plassen as its flagship project. And I actually went back to see what you had already had about the European context on the Rewilding Earth podcast. And I noticed that in a couple of your other older interviews with um, Paul Jepson and then Mark Fisher, um, obviously they disagree in their evaluation of rewilding in Europe, but they say the same thing on this point about linguistic usage. Um, Both of them agree that in Europe, rewilding is linked to this Dutch concept of nature development and its emphasis on grazing by large herbivores. without carnivores, as exemplified by the Osvaldus Plassen project. Jepson described it as reassembling the wild herbivore guilds of the Pleistocene or something like that. Um, Fisher described it as grazing livestock in fenced areas, but they're talking about the same thing. Um, the dominant practice called rewilding is to graze livestock in fenced areas, and the justification um, is often given by groups like Rewilding Europe is that It supposedly replicates the communities of um, mega herbivores that lived 12,000 years ago or so. And it's assumed that this is the appropriate baseline for um, restoration. So 
you know, that's one of the claims I'm interested in about what rewilding is. It's an ambiguous term that has taken on divergent meanings in um, Europe and North America. After spending decades as more of an insider term, today putting the term rewilding in the name of any kind of project or article gets attention. People were really leaning in in 2022. And thankfully, it was an inflection point that Dave Foreman, coiner of the term, was able to witness before he left us. On the Rewilding Earth podcast in 2022, we talked to ecological restoration and fire experts. Here's Stephen Pine on humanity's evolving relationship with fire. And the pyrocene brings together a lot of stuff I've been writing about for a long time and uh, tries to crystallize it into a, a kind of metaphor, if you will. Uh, in many ways, it's my answer to those people who say uh, the future is so dire and strange that, that we have no way to connect it to the past. We, we have no narrative and we have no analog. There's nothing we've had in our experience that will prepare us for the kind of strange happenings that are coming. And my sense is we have a great narrative. It's the unbroken story of humanity and fire, uh, a, a kind of mutual assistance pact we made long ago. And I think we have a, an apt analogy. We're creating the fire equivalent of an ice age. And the enlightening time I spent talking with Deborah Landau on fire and ecological restoration. So a lot of times people ask me about carbon emissions with fires. And well, when we're doing these control burns, goodness, isn't that a bad thing because you're releasing all this carbon into the atmosphere? And what I tell them is, well, when, when we're burning on purpose, when we're doing a control burn, it's it really is under very controlled circumstances. It's not too hot. It's not too windy. It's not too dry. We're burning in a very targeted area. And the result of those burns is this amazing resurgence in growth. So you, even though you've released some carbon to the atmosphere, you're locking in so much more with the new growth that you get after the burn. And there's a lot of the fuels that don't get completely consumed. They turn into, say, charcoal or pyrogenic carbon. And those actually get locked into the soil for millennia. But these megafires that we're seeing are so hot that they're even burning the soil. So the entire tree is consumed. The soil is burned. And it takes very, very long for those systems to recover and to recover that carbon that was lost. But when you compound that with houses and cars and petroleum products, when you're burning all of that, the effects are really catastrophic. So it's just a whole other order of magnitude of damage that's occurring now with these uh, these megafires out west and this combination of um, of forests with far too much fuel in them and, and human structures. Ecological restoration was a prevalent theme in 2022 due to the generous support of Biohabitats and their leaf litter publication, which provided us guests like Deborah and Stephen and also Bethany Walder on ecological restoration at all scales. One of the things we see as all of these global targets for tree planting just in the name of carbon sequestration are promoted is that it can create a perverse incentive. And so because people are approaching this idea of trees as a way to address carbon instead of forests as a way to provide a broad suite of 
benefits for nature, inherent benefits just for nature to exist, as well as benefits to people, ecosystem services, that's typically called, we've seen this emphasis on tree planting. And that emphasis on tree planting can be negative. Because if we care only about carbon sequestration, then the outcome is that you only get rows of trees planted and you don't get an ecosystem and you don't get habitat. You don't get other ecosystem services that including non-timber forest products and other things that would be provided by reforestation and full ecological restoration. I was honored to have Kara Nelson, who helped develop the guiding principles for the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. Per the principles of ecological restoration, ecosystem restoration, and rewilding, it's in all of those. A basic principle is that your planning should be based on the objective of improving the ecological integrity of the ecosystem that you're working in. So it doesn't start, your objective doesn't start and end with, we need trees. It starts with ecological integrity. So that means number one, the area to be in the context of restoration must have been degraded. So if you're proposing to plant trees, afforestation in grassland communities, that's not a restorative activity. And then secondly, the activity should improve ecological integrity. So that's composition, structure, function, connection with you know, subsidies from the uh, ecosystem you're working in into the larger landscape, reducing threats from the larger landscape. So if your activity is spraying a weed, whether or not that's in the context of restoration depends on your overall goal. And if that activity spraying a weed results in secondary invasion by a different weed, obviously it's not a restorative activity. So part of this discussion and dialogue and principles and then standards of practice is to back that out. If we're think we need to take a systems approach if we're trying to engage in this really complicated task of repairing degraded ecosystems. We have to unpack the degradation, and then we need to think about ecosystem assembly. We need to think about it in terms of soils and plants. We need to think about it in terms of wildlife and trophic cascades. Through our partnership with Biohabitats, in 2022, we were able to meet guests that would have been tough to book on the podcast. It's good to have friends with connections. You can learn more about Biohabitats and subscribe to their excellent newsletter called Leaf Litter at biohabitats.com. Okay, so apparently I couldn't shut up about beavers this year. A listener pointed out, correctly, that I ask guests a lot of beaver questions. One of my favorite episodes was with Ben Goldfarb on beavers' role in rewatering the West. I think it's hard for us to understand, as you say, how you know green and blue and lush and wet you know, the Western United States especially used to be. You know, they're just amazing accounts of uh, trappers and explorers, you know, crossing places like southeastern Wyoming, you know, which is today basically desert and finding these, you know, lush marshes full of waterfowl. And, you know, so much of that was, of course, due to due to beavers, you know, and we when we when we killed, you know, several hundred million beavers, uh, you know, in the in the uh, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, you know, we profoundly changed the land in, in ways that we don't fully understand today. You know, it's 
one, one thing that I think about often is that, you know, when you've got a kind of a healthy beaver rich stream, of course, all of those beaver dams are acting like speed bumps, right? Slowing the water down and spreading the water out across the floodplain. And when you lose all of those beaver built speed bumps, you know, there's nothing checking the velocity of water and you get this really dramatic and kind of catastrophic erosion or incision. And that stream gets, you know, locked within its banks uh, and loses that floodplain connectivity and no longer soaks into the ground and recharges the aquifer, right? So there are, you know, all of these, these beaver created hydrological and geomorphological connections, you know, when you, when you lose that, I mean, so many of our lush, wet meadows and wetlands and floodplains that beavers had pushed streams onto, lost that stream connection and, you know, basically desiccated, you know, and I, I think we're not really accustomed to thinking about the fur trade in the same terms as, you know, the deforestation of New England or the busting of the Midwestern prairie or, you know, gold mining in the Sierra Nevada uh, as being this kind of seminal ecological catastrophe. But, you know, there's no question that it uh, it, it dried out North America uh, in a, a huge way and that, you know, fur trading was one of the, the most destructive and earliest things that uh, white white people did in North America. The hardest episode I've ever produced as a podcaster was episode 96, saying goodbye to dear friend and mentor Dave Foreman. Chickadee-dee-dee. It means the wild things have worth for their own sake. And when we sing back, chickadee-dee-dee, it means we have the wisdom, the generosity of spirit, and the greatness of heart to let beings be. I think rewilding, the idea that we can not just keep what we have, but make it bigger and better and wilder might be a key element in inspiring people to say, we don't have to put up with the continued crash of wildlife species, continued exploitation of wild places, the continuing spread of people everywhere, 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 of greater and greater acreages being ripped out of tropical rainforests, ripped out of wild grasslands or deserts, and turned into farm fields. Rewilding may be its greatest value is for inspiration, that we can do better. We can make the situation with the world, with life, with the tree of life that we have become wilder and more whole, that we can return species to healthy populations and have them be in more parts of their natural range. We don't have to put up with the constant bad news of fewer and fewer tigers, fewer and fewer places for lions, fewer and fewer wild places in Utah that aren't industrialized with mines and coal mines and oil and gas drilling. That may be the great value of the rewilding concept is to give people hope that Together, we can make things 
better. Suffice it to say, Rewilding Institute has been through a lot in 2022. But as Dave would guide us, we are using his memory and his vast conservation legacy as inspiration to redouble our efforts on all fronts at TRI. Our states that are leading, um, that have ongoing conversations on these uh, policies of getting 30% of their state lands protected by uh, 2030, 30 by 30, Part of our argument to them is, for example, you can't expect to achieve that goal in Missouri without looking at Iowa, right? You can't expect to achieve that goal downstream without looking upstream. You can't expect to achieve that goal also in Illinois without looking at, and at what Iowa is doing and vice versa. So to that extent, we'd love for folks to start thinking like we are proposing, to start thinking about this as a Mississippi River watershed that we all have a part to play in, that this could be you know, the beginning of a worldview that establishes that watersheds may be a more important uh, community, a more important nested community than your political community at the state level. Why? Because it relates all of us within this region. So it speaks to interdependency, it speaks to relationality, it speaks to valuing also what others, what the claims of others are in other states relative to yours, for example, right? And it speaks also to intersectionality, that we need to think that we are, to the extent that we want to further the well-being of nature, the well-being of our communities, we need to do that together. And to the extent that we further that, that goal, we're furthering everyone's well-being, the well-being of the entire community of life rather than the well-being of just Iowans or just folks from Illinois or just Wisconsinites, right? That seems a much more holistic perspective, in my opinion. That was Francisco Santiago Avila, one of the newest team members in a shared position with TRI and Project Coyote. Fran is the Heartland Rewilding Connectivity Science and Conservation Manager. Renee Secor heads up the Rewilding Carnivore Conservation Advocacy Program under the guidance of Dave Parsons, who played that role for many years. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has defined the range of the Mexican gray wolf population to what we call the Mexican gray wolf experimental population area. And that's, you know, predefined area in New Mexico and Arizona in which we've decided lobos can live within that area. But when they travel north of the I-40 boundary, uh, that's just, you know, not acceptable <laughs> to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So they actually will go out and um, capture those wolves and bring them south of the I-40 boundary. Um, so that northern boundary is is their limit. Um, we've actually seen this with a pretty, you know, infamous wolf called Anibis, who traveled over that northern um, I-40 boundary. I think it was in, you know, 2021. He had moved across that boundary and and north of Flagstaff and had been captured by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and then brought back down south and reintroduced, you know, re-released into the White Mountains. And then um, kind of being the stubborn wolf that he was, he ended up crossing again. Um, and, you know, his story is um, a sad one that ended in his eventual um, death by a um, 
a shooting incident in north of Flagstaff area. Um, so it's, you know, a tragic ending for him, but um, kind of a bold and stubborn wolf that did not want to listen to this, you know, constructed boundary that humans had made for him. Our intrepid director, conservation legend John Davis, introduced our newest project, the Mogollon Wildlife Corridor Campaign. The Mogollon Wildway is a broad, relatively intact habitat link from the Gila Blue Wildlands Complex of southwest New Mexico, northwestward, again, along that upper elevation swath of habitats to the Grand Canyon, to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. There is, there is a, an extensive area of relatively high elevation habitat running from southwest New Mexico to north central Arizona, from the Gila Wilderness to the Grand Canyon National Park, to be specific. That's roughly what we mean by the Mogollon Wildway. And of course, the connections beyond that are vital too. But this, this regional wildway, this regional wildlife corridor, the Rewilding Institute and Wild Arizona and Project Coyote and many other groups see as being especially critical and a crucial part of a much larger spine of the continent or Rocky Mountain Wildway. And Kelly Borgman, our Heartland Rewilding Connectivity Coexistence Coordinator, also a shared position with Project Coyote, on rewilding the Mississippi watershed. We have so many stories from farmers where they talk about, I didn't have any problems with coyotes for a number of years. Sure, you'd hear them, but you never really had a problem with them. But then, you know, I let so-and-so on my property and he started trapping a bunch of coyotes. All of a sudden, I'm having problems with them. So clearly they're, they're increasing their numbers and that's why we're having issues. And so it's going to them and saying, actually, our science shows over 30, 40 years worth of data collection shows that what's happening is we're disrupting that pack structure. You said you've heard them. You've always had coyotes, but they were good neighbors. When you take out your good neighbor, you don't know who's going to move in. And it could be a loud party group that's, you know, going to come in and disrupt your life. So we want to instead foster and build these areas where good coyote packs, where good packs of wolves, bobcats, mountain lions, well, they don't have packs, but you get my drift of we're having good wildlife neighbors coming through this area. And we're putting protections into place that are going to protect livestock. I'm not saying that that you're never going to have an issue. And when we have a habitual offender, there are uh, definitely strategies that we can take to evict them from the neighborhood and let a new family move in. So it's explaining it to them in those concepts of family and neighborhood and packs, something that we all kind of already have an innate understanding of. Um, people may not always understand hard science. We can get real technical in our literature, but by connecting it to those universal concepts that we all innately understand as human beings, we can start to kind of modify attitudes and values and behaviors. Obviously, a pretty big year for TRI and rewilding in general. Looking at the guests already booked for 2023, including opportunities for live interviews with coalition members at events on the Mogollon Rim in Arizona, and in the Jemez Mountains of New Mexico, even the highlands of Scotland, I'm staring down a year like no other in the history of this podcast. If you like what you've heard so far and want to support the podcast, please consider visiting rewilding.org donate. Even $3 per month is a heroic amount for this scrappy operation to continue to explore the worlds of some of the most interesting people in conservation. I want to give a big thanks to you for listening and sharing this podcast with others. Without you, this show would be nothing more than a whisper in a hurricane. 
Thank you. Happy New Year, and we'll catch you on the other side. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.